Welcome to the National Civic Council's podcast, A Stronger Australia. The National Civic Council has advocated for the Australian people since its founding by Bob Santa Maria in the early 1940s. Today, it advocates for an economically and culturally strong Australia, which protects the vulnerable and supports the family as the cornerstone of society. During our podcast, we hear from a wide variety of speakers and experts on how to create a better Australia. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to News Weekly and NCC podcast. This is the fifth in our series on Putin's war on Ukraine. And we have once again Peter Westmore, publisher of News Weekly, here with us today. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Pat. Good to be here. Peter, how do you assess the relative position of Russia and Ukraine after nearly five weeks of war? Well, Pat, uh, we shouldn't forget that among Western observers at the outbreak of war, it was universally agreed that Russia would overrun Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, in within a matter of days. And in fact, at the time, after the attack was launched, the US president offered to evacuate Ukraine's president by air to the west. And the reply of Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was priceless. He said, give me ammunition, not a ride. And that, in a sense, has summed up the fact that the Ukrainians from the very start have said, we will fight. And not only, of course, the president, but in a sense, even more importantly, the Ukrainian army, which has had a very difficult job because they have had to fight on three fronts. The Northern Front, which is facing um, Belarus and Russia. On the Eastern Front, in the area around Donbass, which uh, pro-Moscow separatists had, had seized, or part of that region and from Crimea, which Russia annexed, in other words, they occupied in 2014. And major attacks were launched from all three directions simultaneously. Um, The fact is that the Ukrainian armed forces have performed superbly. Not one major city in Ukraine has fallen over the last five weeks, despite the savagery of Russia's attack on both military and civilian targets. Uh, Now, it should be said, I think, that Russia does seem to have gained territory in the south, that's along the Black Sea, but it has been fought to a stalemate in the north and in the east. Um, There are some reports of Ukrainian forces counterattacking and recapturing some towns which were taken by Russia in the early days of the war. But basically, to summarise it, I would say that the Ukrainians have stalled the Russian advance. What are we to make of Russia's claim that it has basically achieved its first objective and will now concentrate on consolidating its control over the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine? Well, Pat, I think this Russian statement is pure propaganda. At the outset of the war, Vladimir Putin made clear that his objective was to capture Ukraine. He denied that Ukrainians are a people and denied that Ukraine was a separate country. He intended to decapitate its leadership 
capture the capital, Kiev, and by implication, after all of that had been achieved, to incorporate it into Russia itself. And I think after five weeks of war, which has most definitely not gone the way that the Russians intended, I think the Russians have recognised that this objective is no longer achievable. Based on the huge losses of Russian military equipment and manpower. Uh, and um, hence the new line is that Russia has, quote, basically achieved, close quotes, its first objective. Now, I say that is simply untrue. Um, the second part of its statement, and that is that it's going to, uh, it's going to concentrate on holding on to and expanding control in the Donbass region only is also untrue. Because since that statement was made, the war has continued in the north and the south of Ukraine, not just the eastern area, uh, which um, uh, is shown by the continued savage attacks on the city of Mariupol, which has been utterly destroyed by artillery fire and missiles, but which to the present time still remains in Ukrainian hands, despite being completely encircled for weeks. Uh, and further, the Russians within in the last few days have launched missile strikes on both Kyiv in the north and Lviv, which is in the far west of Ukraine, near the Polish border, and neither of them, obviously, are located in the east of Ukraine, where the Russians said that they were going to concentrate their efforts. What's the level of Putin's forces' casualties, and therefore, how's that affected their capacity to wage war? Pat, it's very hard to get precise figures, but US intelligence and the Ukrainians, Ukrainian government and army sources, who have shown themselves to be reliable in the past, have both estimated that the number of Russian dead, this is deaths in their military, as a result of the operations, are around about 15,000. May, may be higher, but they've estimated about 15,000 Russian deaths. Now, to that figure should be added the number of soldiers wounded. And as a rule of thumb, in wars like this where you've got effectively armies facing each other across a, across a battlefield, it's generally understood that the number of casualties, that is people who've been injured, is usually twice, sometimes more, but let's say twice the number of people who've been killed. Now, that being the case, the number of casualties this is people injured, Russians injured in the fighting, will have been around about 30,000. So it's 30,000 injured, 15,000 who have died, and therefore the total number by which the Russian army has been diminished is around about the 45, maybe up to 50,000 mark. Now we have to keep in mind that when Russia launched this invasion, it had an estimated 150,000 troops which it was committing to the battle. So what that means is after just five weeks of fighting, the Russians have lost a third 
of the men who went into the battle, into, into, the, into this in the first place. Compared with other wars, this casualty rate is colossal, almost unbelievably large. Uh, to give an example of a comparable one, in the Second World War, one of the most bloody battles which took place in the Pacific Theatre was the battle for a little island in the Pacific, not very far from Japan, called Iwo Jima. And the history books tell us that the Americans, over the course of two months in trying to capture this little island, which the Japanese were defending to the last man, the, ja the Americans captured the island after two months and suffered 8,000 deaths. In other words, to capture that, that um, strategic position, which the Americans needed for the bombing of cities of, of the Japanese home islands, the Americans suffered half the loss in two months that the Russians have lost in five weeks. And that, I think, gives us an idea of the immensity of the losses which have taken place. Now, you might say, well, surely the Russians can bring more troops to the, into this battle. And they may very well do that. But certainly within the Russian army, we know that the morale of Russian troops is actually low. So even if you bring new soldiers into the, into the battle or into the front lines, they are going to very quickly find out from the other soldiers who are already there that this is basically carnage. And it's of interest to me that we've had reports of Russian soldiers deserting. We've had other reports of um, one Russian military commander, I think a general, who has been basically killed by his own troops. In other words, there's been a mutiny there. So there is a huge problem for the Russians, not just in bringing new forces to the front, but actually of being able, having taken big losses in the first five weeks of the campaign to continue that. But certainly they would have a potential to do, to carry on this war more or less indefinitely. The other thing is they have concentrated increasingly on the use of artillery. In other words, shells and missiles, rather than putting their own soldiers in the front line. Now, that is terribly effective for destructive purposes. But as we've seen in earlier wars, uh, and I'm just thinking, going back to the, that example of the Second World War, the Americans, and even in the First World War, the Allies bombed the hell out of German and Japanese lines before they launched attacks. And the most interesting thing was, actually it did not stop the Germans and the Japanese from continuing to fight on. Just, so artillery is important, but it does not win wars. It's troops, it's boots on the ground. And I understand, Peter, that the Russians in addition to battle casualties have lost a lot of troops out of the uh, front line because of poor clothing and that has left them with frostbite, frostbite yes, yeah, and you've also yes. lost 
quite a few generals. Yes, yes, I've I've read that too, and and also we've read reports of Russian troops starving in the field. Now we know about people starving in Mariupol, which has been cut off and is being, in a sense, starved into submission. But Russian troops have been reported to have been surrendering and of saying that they simply have had no no food. So, yes, this is a... The, the military campaign has been sort of a shambles from the Russian side, and, and that will certainly affect their capacity to wage a war going forward. Is it possible that Putin wants to partition Ukraine like North and South Korea? Well, yes, I think he probably does. Um, as his original objective now seems unattainable, um, the real question is whether Ukraine will agree to give up part or, say, half of its country, knowing that even if they agree to that, they will know that Putin's real objective is the conquest of all of Ukraine. And you would end up with a front across Ukraine from which people would continue to fight. So my own opinion is, even if Putin wanted to partition Ukraine, I cannot see that the Ukrainians, Ukrainian government, President Zelensky or others could ever agree to it. What is the significance of the support given to Putin's attack on Ukraine by the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill? Well, it's this is a really important question. Um, just before um, answering specifically, I, I'd just like to give a little bit of background to why uh, Patriarch Kirill's intervention supporting Putin has, is important. After the collapse of Soviet communism in 1990, the Russian Orthodox Church became free for the first time in 70 years. And it's undoubtedly true that the Orthodox Church is the most powerful moral force in Russia, as most Russians are members of the Church. Now, over the last 20 years, Vladimir Putin, although his background is as a KGB officer and part of the regime of an atheist state, but he is also a hard-headed politician. And what he's sought to do is to ingratiate himself with the church, and he's tried very hard to incorporate the church into his political base. Now, he's done this in a number of ways. He's done this by attending major religious events such as Christmas and Easter, which have become great photo opportunities to see him being blessed by the patriarch. Um, he's also financially assisted the church by assisting the return of churches stolen during the communist era and by using state funds to renovate and rebuild churches. And certainly when I was in Moscow eight years ago, I went into a number of churches and there was a plaque on the outside in English saying that the church had been rebuilt with state support. And then on top of that, um, we've also had um, a situation where Putin has um, encouraged the church to be outspoken on certain issues which Putin has wanted them to speak on, including issues of a nationalist sort of flavour. 
So, and, and the Russian Orthodox Church is not only a religious organisation, but it is intensely nationalist. So what Putin has done is to formulate his invasion of Ukraine as a campaign to reunify all Russians into the mother country. And he's appealing to Russian nationalism, which is a powerful force in the country, and where the church is seen as one of the guarantors of the Russian nation. So he has, in a sense, acted in a way that has strongly encouraged the orthodox hierarchy with whom the, the officials of the state have close relations to lend their support to him. And Patriarch Kirill has done that and he's in fact called for the war to end with the unification of all Russian people, which is code for the incorporation of Ukraine into Russia. Uh, and that, I think, is has aroused within the Russian Orthodox Church itself a lot of opposition. We've had a, a report of 500 Russian Orthodox priests within Russia petitioning the Patriarch to condemn the invasion. This is utterly unprecedented. Ukrainian, sorry, the Orthodox hierarchy have a very long reputation for being loyal to the hierarchy and particularly to the Patriarch. For 500 Russian Orthodox priests to stand up and call on him to dissociate himself from the invasion, I would say has not happened before. One other interesting thing, Pat, is that I looked on the website of the Russian Orthodox Church to see what the Patriarch had said about this war on their official website and the deaths of 15,000 Russians or the carnage which has been happening in Ukraine. And on the website, there is no mention about this at all. However, I noticed on the website that um, the Patriarch was able to send off greetings to the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, on the occasion of his birthday. And he also was able to send off um, greetings to the Chinese government on the downing of that um, of that China Airlines East China East Airlines jet a week or two ago. So here you have a complete disconnect with the patriarch, the leading moral force in the country, having nothing to say about this issue, in which fifteen thousand of his own of soldiers from his own country have died. Uh, it's it's very obvious, I think that the Patriarch has decided he's basically going to support Russia despite the consequences for the Russian people. The other interesting thing about it, Pat, is that this invasion has had the effect of causing deep divisions in the Orthodox Church internationally. Not only do we have sections of the Russian Orthodox Church 
within Russia, and I'm talking here particularly about the petition of the 500 Russian Orthodox priests, clearly expressing their opposition to the invasion. But in Ukraine, where the Orthodox Church has has been divided, there has been unanimous opposition to the invasion, including from the section of the Orthodox Church, which up to the present time has recognised the authority of the Moscow Patriarchate. And there have been sections of the Orthodox Church in other countries, such as Poland, which have also condemned the invasion. And the Patriarch of Constantinople, who is considered as the first among equals in the Orthodox Church, the Patriarch of Constantinople has also condemned the invasion. So the effect of what we've seen with Putin's invasion has actually been to split orthodoxy, not only sort of cause deep divisions in Russia and in Ukraine, but actually orthodoxy internationally. And I would even go so far as to say that Patriarch Kirill, as a result of his support for Putin's invasion, is now a pariah in the orthodox world. Peter, is there any prospect of peace talks ending the crisis? Pat, it's very hard to know because the peace talks which have been held so far have been quite inconclusive. Now, it is possible that there could be ceasefires arising from peace talks, which would be, for example, to allow for the burying of the dead. We've seen terrible, terrible accounts of soldiers and civilians who have been simply left dead um, on battlefields. Um, It's also possible that there could be ceasefires for humanitarian corridors to allow civilians to escape the war. There have been some reports of some such ceasefires, although the Russians have been, seem to have been very reluctant to reach even these agreements, although Ukraine has urgently sought them. But going back to the bigger picture about a peace agreement to end the war, What it requires is that both sides have to be able to compromise on key issues. Now, while Ukraine is apparently ready to compromise by agreeing not to join NATO and to be politically neutral, there is no way that they can formally agree to the division of their own country. Uh, Similarly, I cannot see Putin relinquishing land which he has seized over the past sort of, uh, uh, well, the last five weeks of fighting. Still less can I see him abandoning his claims to Crimea, which was annexed eight years ago, and the Donbass region, which pro-Russian separatists have also controlled for the last eight years. So I would say the divisions between the sides are so deep that there will be no early resolution to the conflict. Peter Westmore, thank you very much for your briefing today and we look forward to your next briefing on Putin's war on Ukraine. Thanks very much, Pat. Thank you for listening to the National Civic Council's podcast, A Stronger Australia. The National Civic Council is a non-party political movement which seeks to build a strong and prosperous nation. Through our policy, research and advocacy, we stand up against the greatest threats to the family and the Australian way of life. 
The NCC also produces the fortnightly magazine News Weekly, which covers all topics relating to a stronger Australia. Subscribe at ncc.org.au forward slash newsweekly. We look forward to joining you for our next episode. Thank you for listening.